Michelle! I have so many questions right off the bat. So there is a little bit of violence here. Is this show killing people? Like a whole bunch of people went to sleep and never woke up again. So I took the quiz. Oh, I have anxiety and depression. They're pretty bad. Yeah, I know. Thanks. Yes. I'm, I'm really jealous of people who don't have to listen to themselves all the time because I'm a lot. Is it because you're an android? Diamonds, Michelle. Okay, okay. Just feel like, you know what? I'm gonna give the kids something nice. I'm gonna give them the Yule Log. I'm so proud of us. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you are too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. waved at you. You don't know because this is not a visual medium. <laughs> You'd think this is episode 31 and I can't get it together. Um, hello everybody and welcome to Angriement, the podcast with Catherine waving at you. And Michelle. And every fortnight on Angriement we bring you three things. A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. And then we try to make them all fit together in a thing we might even say we blend them like 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 a blender blender (laughs) okay okay michelle's making fun of me because this podcast is called angry mint i had the great idea to call it friender blender and yeah that doesn't work does it I like, I like, it, you know, it, it could have worked. I just think it would have been a different thing. I don't, I don't know what vibe we yeah. would have. Friender blender. I feel like that has to have like a honk honk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> different. Be very different. Different vibe. So yeah. We are here and then we try to make it fit together into, we like to think of it as a fortune cookie sentiment that we hope will help guide you in whatever strangeness is happening in your life. Let's get on with it. Okay, weird, speaking of strange, weird things. My weird thing is pretty short and sweet, but I'm very excited about it because it combines two episodes ago when you talked about the nocebo effect. And it combines that with my favorite thing to do for weird things, which is just animal facts. We're back at it. Old standby animal facts. It's also an animal fact. (laughs) Animals are weird. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, we're animals. So my weird thing is that I found an article, a a journal article in a medical journal, and it has now been several of them, actually. I have three different links I'll link to. It has been confirmed scientifically that dogs also are susceptible to the placebo effect. Oh, And this is the placebo effect in canine epilepsy trials. And there were several different 
studies and the primary study that is now used, 22 of 28 dogs, which is 79% of the test subjects in the study. I'm glad you did that because I could not. I pre-did it. Yeah, that was not done in my head on the fly. Oh no, oh no. (laughs) So 79% of dogs in the study received placebo demonstrated a decrease in seizure frequency. It was for dogs having seizures. And that is enough to say, here's their conclusion, a positive response to placebo administration manifesting as a decrease in seizure frequency is observed in epileptic dogs. This is of importance when evaluating open label studies in dogs that aim to assess efficacy of anti-epileptic drugs as the reported results might be overstated. So yeah, in drug studies and dogs saying, oh, this drug is so good for your dog might be an overstatement because the dog is having a placebo effect. So we don't really understand why placebo effects work for humans, right? So we certainly don't know why they work for dogs. Yeah. Even like figure it out for people who can communicate with us. I really want to know how they were giving them the pills too, like how they were administrating the drugs. Yeah, because I've read that, um, you know, some placebo effects in humans only work when it's administered. So like they'll start with an actual, with the actual drug and they'll like administer it out of like, you know, you always take it out of this pink cup or whatever. And then if you continue to take a placebo out of that pink cup, then it will work. Like if it, if whatever, like, so that it's, so I wonder if the dogs had any similar. Yeah. You have to right? Yeah. Your, your mind has to be saying, this is the drug and it does something, but I just can't help but think that like, usually when you, it's very difficult to get a dog to take a pill. Like you have to hide it. They have to I don't know, know not they're mine. having it. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Mine, mine just will eat literally. Anything. <laughs> I mean, it's not great for, you know, him, but yeah. yeah. But. So I don't know if they were administrating pills or if it was some other way, but I just short and sweet. Like I said, I think that just increases the weirdness of yours that not only can humans have placebo effect and nocebo effect, but yeah, dogs, dogs too, which means what other animals can. Yeah. And which means what is it? Yeah. What is the placebo? Like what does it do? I don't know. Okay. Cause of course we think, oh, we're so special and our brains, right. our human brains we're, are so powerful. We're just power. Yeah. yeah. That's it. We also, I will say, have a grab bag. So I'm keeping it short. I'm so excited about our grab bag. I was about to go on about the talking dog pushing the buttons, but I'm, I'm going to let it go. I'm going <gasps> to let it go for the sake of oh. I do like that talking dog. It will, but I do like, I, I do really like the talking dog, but it also makes me a little uncomfortable because if dogs have that level of ability to put together ideas and um, that dog even like, questions what other animals are thinking and so there's the sense that that dog can maybe like has perspective taking um and if it's not unique to that dog and that is just a feature that dogs can have um there's a lot of dogs whose lives are not conducive to that deep of an internal experience oh that's true and maybe i'll let it (laughs) maybe i know one thing and turn into such a downer but i can't but i'll probably edit this out but now that we're talking about this like animals are deeper than we think maybe, or just how do they think what's going on in there? I have to say this morning, you know, you know that I love staring at the squirrels in my backyard. Favorite thing in the world. I was doing my dishes this morning, clear shot out to the squirrels. 
And there's just a big, fat, fluffy squirrel sitting on the fence, staring off into space. And he looked very contemplative. And I realized, oh, you're overreading, right? Like we're putting human things into animals. But it did make me think as I stared, the squirrel just stared and stared the whole time I was doing dishes, just staring off into the middle distance, looked contemplative. And I thought to my first thought was, and I don't know if this is brilliant or idiotic or both, but my first thought was surely, surely squirrels have to have deep interior minds and deep interior thoughts because they don't have podcasts and television to distract them all day. <laughs> I was like, what would you do? Cause I was like listening to a podcast while I also was like talking on the phone and staring at a squirrel. And I'm like, really? I have no time for internal thoughts because there's always a screen or a book or another screen or something in my ears, but like squirrels just sitting on that fence staring. You can't tell me he's just going squirrel, 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 squirrel. I think, I think um, we should probably explore the uh, burnout meter for how much you envy the squirrel's life. <laughs> Man, wouldn't it be nice to be a squirrel? <laughs> Probably is a sign. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's an official. We should check in. I before this started, I I didn't say how are you. I was like, what's new in your world? And you still are. Uh. So I'm gonna I'm looking for ways that I can start addressing people that isn't like aggressive. How much do I like, be a squirrel? Yeah, I'm like, so how much are you envying the life of a squirrel today? <laughs> Scale of one to ten. Where's your, where's your squirrel meter? I guess this morning for me, it was 10 out of 10. Want to be a squirrel sitting on a fence, just staring, just staring <laughs> at the world. <laughs> um, my weird thing was something else that was pretty cool, but I'm gonna save it for later. And I was on Facebook and I saw like this Facebook meme warning you about this invasive species and how you should handle them. And I was reading it and I was like, this doesn't sound true. Like, this sounds like somebody made this up. This is ridiculous. So I went and looked it up and it was all true. And it is so disturbing. But oh, the thing that I found it on, I found it in a couple different places. But this is um the Bob Vila, like tried true trustworthy home advice <laughs> from the Bob Vila website with tried true trustworthy home advice because the I would trust Bob Vila with anything I grew up on this old house like my parents had like the PBS donor this old house t-shirts that is that's more trustworthy than Mr. Rogers man Bob Vila and the tone is just I, well I, I won't even try to explain it anymore I'm just gonna read some sections from you let's do it Thanks to the half moon shape of their heads, hammerhead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Why did that make me laugh? We're not going to get through this. <laughs> Thanks to the half moon shape of their heads, hammerhead worms are known by many names, including hammerhead flatworm, arrowhead flatworm, and broadhead planarian, a category of flathead worms. So we are talking today about the hammerhead worm, which is a native to Southeast Asia, but they've been found in parts of the United States since 1980. Um, they typically need tropical humid regions. So they are not, they're mostly in the South right now, but there's fear that as global warming spreads, they could too, because they are an invasive species. And like the hammerhead shark, the hammerhead worm gets its moniker from its distinctive spade-shaped head. 
Uh, it can grow up to 15 inches long. No, no. Yeah. That's yeah. a snake. That's yeah. a snake, not a worm. Nope. Um, they can be gray, brown, golden, green. Some of them are quite pretty, but they're all kind of disturbing looking, especially the really long ones. It secretes a potent neurotoxin, tetrodotoxin, tetrodotoxin, um, that immobilizes its prey and makes it where you should not touch it because it can trigger nausea and um, make you sick. So you should not touch these worms. You should, however, kill them on site. (laughs) (laughs) But not by touching. Not by touching. So the rest of this article is a step-by-step instruction on how to appropriately kill the hammerhead worm if you see one because it is you're right that sounds fake this is we are in the worst timeline we are in the simulation that we have to bob vila is telling us here's the appropriate way to kill the hammerhead worm and because it's killing earthworms so it's like a predatory and we need earthworms to aerate the earth you know not because we care about other species but because we care about ourselves we need them to aerate the earth for us so we don't want bees to kill our earthworms um and so the problem with trying to kill them is how do you kill most things that you're trying to kill i'm never killing anything but if i was gonna kill something if this worm was going to get me with its neurotoxins and I saw it, I would smash it with something heavy. I'd take a hammer to the hammerhead. Yeah. Well, then you would just break it in half and have two. No! No! <laughs> that was so loud. I'm sorry. So, so okay. So it, it can split and regenerate into more. Yes. In fact, there's another article about it from ThoughtCo and it has a little fact sheet about it. And one of the fact sheets is lifespan, possibly immortal. No, 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 no. So the rest of this post. Step two, if you spot a hammerhead worm, take a photo. Should I kill hammerhead worms? Yes, but first take a photo and send it to your local cooperative extension service, your state's Department of Natural Resources, or if you live in Texas, to the Texas Invasive Species Institute. So got to take a picture before you kill it. But then what do you do? Because you cannot chop it up. If you chop fire, it, kill it with fire. If you chop it into 10 pieces, it just becomes 10, 10 worms. Yes. yes. Can you kill it with... I mean, that's a common phrase, right? Kill it with fire, but that's not practical. Well, that's we, not practical. All these researchers have found a way. So okay, first, science it, will find a way to murder. You put it in a sealable container. Don't touch it with your hands. Use a stick, gloves, or paper towel to place it into the container. If you do touch it, be sure to wash and disinfect your hands. Placing the worms in a container ensures they won't get away and makes it easier <laughs> to apply a solution to kill them. Oh no. So I thought maybe we were just depriving them of oxygen in the container. That's not enough. They're possibly immortal. This is not. Okay. They don't need air. First with, with your gloves and your container, you have gone out and collected these worms and put, so now you have a container full of worms or at least full of worm. Next, you have to apply salt and or grain vinegar concentrate to the hammerhead worms in the bag, seal the bag, and place it in the freezer for 48 hours to ensure that the worm has dissolved. (gasps) This is, this is some like zombie white walker bullshit. Oh my God. Do not cut the worm into pieces. One of the ways they reproduce (laughs) is by asexual fragmentation. So you'll only compound the problem if you cut up the worm in an attempt to kill it. 
Step five, discard the dissolved worms and sanitize the container. After a hammerhead worm has been sealed in a plastic bag, treated with salt or a combination of salt and vinegar and placed in the freezer for 48 hours. I like how they just repeated all the steps because they were like, no, 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 you're going to miss one. So I need you to read. No, there's going to be that. like a kernel of worm left that will regenerate. Most sources advise tossing the whole sealed container into the trash, but if you prefer to reuse it, it should be cleaned and disinfected of its dissolved. Michelle, would you ever be able to use that container again? I wouldn't even be able to use it to do this again. <laughs> I'm like, no, no. This you wouldn't even have a jar. <laughs> exclusive worm killing container. Step six, keep on the lookout for additional hammerhead worms and repeat steps three through five as needed. Step seven, this is your life now. This is your whole life. This is humanity's destiny to just fight against worms till one of us wins and we're not immortal. We're not maybe immortal. <laughs> you put, you cut me in half. That's it. That's it. That's the end. You have zero me's now, not two. We're, what are we fighting against? I, I can't touch vinegar without dissolving though. So there is that. That's true. And I actually, fun fact, you might think vinegar powder. Why would you have that? Where do you get that? I have a giant container of vinegar powder because it is delicious to air fry chicken wings and then toss them in vinegar powder. You have salt and vinegar chicken wings. Salt and vinegar. That's that's its two biggest. That's how we're going to defeat the hammerhead worms. I'm so prepared. My love of salt and vinegar as a flavoring will help me in the oncoming worm battle. You better get your worm killing containers ready. It'll be my air fryer. I'll dedicate. Oh, I'll just. I'll just. I'll just treat them like chicken wings. Toss them in salt and vinegar. Ka-chink. I think what's what's the best setting? Like the steak setting for these guys. Remember that how to eat fried worms book that they like made us read. Yes. And, like wh- why? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I remember them being very excited. Like this was like what like early middle school, and like oh yeah, we're we're reading a book that you kids can really relate to, and I'm like I. <laughs> Do nope. not want to eat worms. I'm not sure what you think us kids are about, but yeah, this is not, no. All right. That's it. That's my weird thing. Save. There's hammerhead worms. We're supposed to be prepared to kill them with our hammerhead worm killing containers and solutions. I just, I just want to reiterate. These are 15 inch long worms that secrete poisonous liquid, look like hammerhead sharks and are immortal. And just regenerate the more you chop them up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. You got it. Cool, you got cool, it. Cool. I am very excited. Very, very pleased to announce we have a grab bag. Grab bag! grab bag and as i will remind everyone you can do a live grab bag with us and schedule a time you can record yourself doing a grab bag or you can do what this anonymous listener has done and write it up and we'll just read it verbatim so this is by this is this listener wants to remain anonymous but also they are anonymous a and anonymous B Osh, like Bosch, which is hilarious, right? Hieronymus Bosch. Yes. Come on. I love it. So this is weird thing 
tied to a research thing. So this anonymous listeners also brought in a research thing. Just give me a little teaser for what's to come. Yeah. So just pre-connections they're doing. They can, you can cheat. We can't. So I'm going to read this and this is written from their perspective. This is now the grab bag, not me. So yesterday, our neighbor out of the blue asked us if we were having a cow funeral. We raised beef cattle on our farm. So although this was a weird question, it was not completely mad. We've had a Scottish Highland bull on our farm for quite a long while. What is a Scottish Highland bull? Think Braveheart or a Rosa Bonheur painting, long shaggy hair, which with bangs over the eyes and long curved horns. Quite majestic, actually. We called him Wooly Bully, of course. As for his personality, think of the old joke about the young bulls and the old bull. This bull was definitely the old bull. (laughs) Mellow, slow-gated, gentle, stately. He ruled the pasture and was well-respected by the entire herd. That's a past tense. I don't know. Yeah. 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 He ruled the pasture. He was well-respected by the entire herd, even though he was smaller than his younger and rival bull. So that's impressive. Mm. To show his dominance, Wooly Bully would often lay down in front of a water trow or a hay bale or a corn trow just to prevent the other cows from getting their fill until he was ready. Then he would get up very slowly and purposefully and walk away to let them eat and drink. Back to our inquisitive neighbor. It seemed that old Wooly Bully had laid down and not just for a rest. He was dying. The other members of the herd had answered the call of a cow who had found Wooly Bully, and they all came running across the field. They surrounded the old bull in a frenetic cow confab, and each started to push at Wooly Bully to try to get him to stand back up. Even the younger rival bull was doing his best to get Wooly Bully up. We had seen this before. And the herd's efforts had worked a couple of years ago when Wooly Bully was sick. But this time, despite nearly an hour of effort, it was for naught. Wooly Bully was gone. So we hired the local excavator to bury Wooly Bully on site. The entire herd circled the excavator in fits of bawling and cow calls. When Wooly Bully was finally laid to rest, The herd stayed and pawed at the grave. They circled it and laid on it en masse. They stayed the night there. And in the morning, they drifted off. And that was that. It really was a cow funeral. And it makes you wonder and marvel at the majesty of nature. I'm I'm sitting with that and our other weird things. And, you know, very much... uh... I don't know that I would call the hammerhead worm a majesty of nature, but just there's certainly a uh... it is a, a wonder. It yeah, is there's yeah. wonder to it. But this is that even they buried mm-hmm. they buried the cow deep into the earth and all the other cows just lay down. Well, and I think I think the thing that makes me wonder is like what's the communication process? Like was there, is there now a new cow that's in charge? It's like, no, this is what we do. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, like how, yeah, how do they, how do they know? know? 
I already see so many pre-connections because like we're saying, we don't know what's going on and we think, oh, animals don't care about death and things like that. But clearly it, some this mattered. It made me think about, um, there was this, like, it was like a Facebook post or something that was going around that said that uh, my dog always puts a shoe on the bed when my wife and I are both gone. The theory is that um, one time we were both gone and the dog put the shoe on the bed and we both came back. So now it's like a dog superstition. And he's like, and then one day my wife went out of town for a couple weeks. And like the first day dog put one shoe on the bed. Next day dog put two shoes on the bed. And by the end of the, the trip, the dog had put like every single shoe in the house, on the bed, on the couch. It had filled the water bowl with socks and like was trying to like do some sort of like, oh, it's not working. <laughs> like, and the, oh, like, the post ended with like, I really just kind of wonder how his brain works, you know, like what, what's going on in there? Yeah. But is that, it's like, is it superstition? Is it a whole belief system? It's just so interesting that the neighbor's like having a cow funeral. That makes me laugh as, as if, right. It's so fascinating that the cows did this of their own volition. But I think it would be weirder. Like, how would you get the cows to do that? If you wanted, if you were a, a if Show you were the kind of person, yeah. <laughs> if you're like, okay, we're gonna have a funeral, guys. Come on, come on. How would you make cows have a funeral? I guess you could put grain on top. Yeah, but that wouldn't make them lay there all night. That wouldn't oh, make them exactly. paw at the ground. Yeah. No, that would be just a a mockery. Yeah. Of a cow funeral. Thank you, Anonymous A and Anonymous B. Ash. I'm simultaneously about to cry and just like in love. It, it with- is both amusing and yeah, touching, right? Like it's a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just full of wonder at the world. Yeah. Pop culture. Pop culture pop culture okay my pop culture is uh, i would say semi-cogent <laughs> but but basically i am very interested here are my notes my notes is under pop culture of like mall culture i guess <laughs> i i kind of i think my pop i think if i had to say what my pop culture is it is mall culture and what I mean by that is I've been trying to put into pop culture for a while now in a lot of ways like the new jackass movie came out which made me feel both very happy and very old and it was really interesting to see how all of those people in jackass have kind of aged with me but there just seems to be a lot of um, things from our youth that are in the zeitgeist now. We talked about with the Super Bowl commercial, we're the target market, but I think with becoming the target market with disposable income, our youth is now being mined for nostalgia hipness. And that yeah. is also very weird. Like you talked about the Tamagotchi with your daughter and I'm seeing things like, it seems like it's very cool right now to have like Urban Outfitters 2008 to 2010 vibes, that whole vibe which is hilarious to me because it's exactly when I worked at Urban Outfitters. So I'm just like, I am the culture, but I'm not because I'm old and I'm, I, you can't go relive it. But 
also hot topic everyone's like oh my gosh did you know hot topic was great like yeah yeah Yeah. i did we've known for a long time yes so you and i we should we we could talk about that for days about how obsessed you and i were with hot topic we would drive the 45 minutes to the closest mall i once put a prom dress on layaway at hot topic um when i had no money but I was just so determined that I was going to have that very gothic red and black, like crushed velvet prom dress. And I did. I also had hot topic prom dress. Yeah. 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 It, it was like the like black and red, very, yeah. Yeah. It was a very, um, like, oh, and I paid for it. I went, <laughs> I put it on layaway. I was 16. I put it on layaway. And at the time I was, (laughs) I was on an Alcoholics Anonymous bowling league. I I went to some bowling stuff with you. (laughs) I was not in Alcoholics Anonymous, but um, a close family friend was and was in a bowling league and they needed more people to play and he asked if we would and I was like sure so I was in this and they were the nicest people and I got there and I was like my mom is going to kill me because I have put this dress on layaway and we cannot afford it and I do not have money and I put on a cup that said alms for the prom and um <laughs> they started doing a thing where they would put like a dollar in every time they made a strike and they paid for my prom dress amazing and it was a hot topic prom it was dress. a hot topic prom dress yeah yeah you you had really good prom style I remember the prom that you had like your hair was like netted that was that was the one that I that wore was that, that prom yeah. yep nice I cannot describe the hairstyle to anyone except your hair became a fishing net and it was beautiful it was very fun it was so beautiful so Yes. Mall culture seems to be, so all these things about our youth are coming back. That's interesting. Um, but especially mall culture, I'm interested in that. That seems to be very much having a moment of nostalgia, but like we talked about with Tamagotchi, can it be nostalgia if they didn't experience it? What, what is, what is it then? Um, other than just, you know, why did we have just inflatable retro, furniture yeah. retro, right? We had beaded curtains and lava lamps. It's that, and it makes me feel very old. Um, a lot of mall stores are cool again. Hot topic. Abercrombie and Fitch is back in a big way. Hollister is back in a big way. So I don't know what I want to say about this other than I just if I was a squirrel on a fence, this is something I'd be thinking about a lot more and have more to say about. I will say there is, someone else has done the thinking for me. And I recently read an, a really great, just an excellent, excellent collection of essays called Tacky. And the author is Rax King, an ode to things that are tacky. And there's like an essay. There's actually a James Beard award-winning essay about Guy Fieri and diners, drive-ins and dives and how that helped her get through an abusive relationship. And there's a whole essay on Hot Topic. And this, I just cannot recommend Tacky by Rax King enough. (laughs) I'm just spinning my wheels. But mall culture seems to be very cool again. And yet there aren't a lot of malls, right? The mall was kind of of a dang thing. So I'm like, where do you go? Everyone's buying it. 
everyone's buying Abercrombie and Fitch online, but like the whole thing was like Hollister was dark and like scary and full of perfume. So I don't know because I'm not the one driving are, retro. Yeah, trend. are they going there? Or are, well, I do know I had a, a friend recently who like their child turned 13 and all they wanted to do was like have a day at the mall, which you know, there's been so many times from COVID where a lot of these yeah. kids just haven't been able to do anything. So maybe there's like a push for that kind of like being in public and being, you know, like having that sort of public experience that has come out of not being able to do that in so long. Like, yeah, but I don't know if this is coming to fruition, but I read that like Amazon is going to have in, in malls, they'll have like fulfillment centers or you can go shop in like Amazon stores. What would they do? How would they decide what to put in there? I know, but clearly there's a desire, right? Malls all but died and people want them back. People so want to go we to just, the mall. We just some one big hamster wheel just over and over again. We're just like, take it away, bring it back, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, that's what we're going to be until the hammerhead worms kill us all. Which might not be that long from now, honestly. So I, I am... Since we have a lot of grab bags that are better than what I have to say, I just want us all to ruminate on mall culture. culture. And if you have a youth that goes to the mall or you go to a mall or you know about malls, let me know. Because I don't know. Um, I will say I'll end this with one thing that I think is very interesting. And it makes me reconsider like, what is research? What is an archive? Which is, I will link it in the show notes, but it's called Gap playlists. And it's a blog by someone who worked at the Gap when they were younger. I I remember I went to Hot Topic and then I went to the Gap. It was very dual sides, a dichotomy of there are two wolves inside of you and one of them shops at the Gap and one (laughs) of them shops at Hot Topic. (laughs) The Gap was a vibe, right? There was like, there was a moment where it was very cool and they had very cool ads and this was the height of when this person was working at the Gap. And the idea of this blog is that they are collecting originally all the playlists that the Gap stores had because Gaps would have a playlist and they would change them out for the seasons. But every Gap store across the country had to play the same that music. That is fascinating. Isn't that interesting? And so... At first, it was a cassette when they started working and they would send the cassettes out and then it was a CD, but you would get mailed the CD and then the playlist. And that's what the gap would play for that season. And it's really interesting to see what kind of mix they're doing. It's very interesting. It's a marvelous time capsule. And then they, from there, started expanding out and just collected all this ephemera of the gap, all of their ad campaigns, um, videos, marketing videos for people that worked like at gap headquarters and sales to say this is a gap. Right. And like, this is the mood for the gap this time. So that's like an interesting behind the scenes look, but just like the nostalgic joy I had and it's organized so beautifully. It is a beautiful archive. What's it called? Say it again. It's, it's called gap playlists.blogspot.com well-organized. You can click by year. You can be like, what, what was the gap doing the year I graduated high school? What was the gap doing the year I had my first kiss, whatever you want. And it really takes you right back 
and it has all the ad campaigns, print material, television ads, music from it. And it's, it's just, for me, it's nostalgic, but I think also, I don't think we think enough about when we're doing like research or thinking about what an archive is to really take down culture in that way, because it, it, you watch it and it does tell us a lot. It tell Yeah. It, but it feels so forced and artificial at the time, but you don't, think, right. but like, but the things that are forced and artificial, like they're, they're trying to respond to something. So like, and they're trying to respond to something that's hard to capture. So they're sort of forced an artificial capture of what they're trying to respond to. It's almost like a, like the negative of a picture or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much taking a look at if you are over the age of 35. I'm going to yeah. check it out. I'm excited. Over the age of 32. I don't know. There, I don't make the rules. Whatever age you want. Whatever age, if you go there and it resonates for you, that age. I just, if not, I just, you know. I just think if you graduated high school between, I don't know, 1998 and 2005, it'll hit different. It'll hit better. I'm excited. That is my pop culture. Malls, malls and mall stores. And all these recommendations. My pop culture thing may be cheating because it's just, <laughs> it's just your pop culture thing from last week. <laughs> okay. Play the tape. <laughs> Done. No, because... So last week, for those of you who forgot, because I'm sure you listened to last week's, right? Or last, last fortnight. Last, last fortnight's. Fortnight. So you recommended the podcast Normal Gossip. Oh, I forgot to talk about this with you before we started recording. And I you intentionally... didn't talk about it because now we're going to talk yep. about it. Yep. yep. <laughs> so you recommended Normal Gossip and I actually got a little bit anxious, even as we were talking about it then, like even when you were just describing it, but, and I was like, why? I don't know. So then I started listening to it. I listened to two episodes and it makes me so anxious that I don't think I can listen to it. And I won't even say that I don't like it, but it makes me so physically tense and like terrible things are going to happen to me. (gasps) This is fascinating. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so we, there's a lot we have in common, but then there are like things that we are very different about. And yeah. there are some pop culture things for some reason, lo- this season of love is blind is an overlap. And we both talk about it. <laughs> but it's I don't know rare- why. I mean, that's a rarity. That's a, that's a, you know, I think. Yeah. Okay. So normal gossip is making mm-hmm. you uncomfortable. I, yeah. So I was trying to figure out exactly why. Cause yeah. I, it's, I understand what you like about it. Like I understand why it's entertaining. I understand like, I think I have two theories for what is making me so anxious and I'm not sure which one it is. So for those of you who don't know, or who didn't listen last time, or who don't remember the premise of normal gossip is that there is a woman who during the pandemic really, really, really missed gossiping. Like she, she realized that she loves to gossip and that without the chance to see people in person, without some sort of, you know, big, like just the kind of everyday conversations you have that you build these relationships where you can gossip with people. And I don't think she's talking about like harmful gossip, but just like, you know, she's especially interested in the, you know, four steps removed, like my dog walkers, sisters, best friend did this thing, or you're never really going to actually see this person and there's no stakes in the game. And you're just right. So she brings on a guest and she has these stories that have been submitted 
by somebody else and anonymized. And then she's telling the guest and then asking the guest to respond to them. Right. Um, and so like, I've only listened to two episodes because again, I think I'm going to work myself into an anxiety attack and I don't know that I can continue. Don't do that. No. Um, but I was, so one of them was about like a bunch of graduate students who go on a camping trip and one of them finds out that, well, there's, there's this kind of class disparity thing going on. And then one of them finds out that two people are sleeping together and one of them has a boyfriend and like, is she going to tell, is she going to, you know, get in the middle of it or not? Um, and then there's a bunch of like class disparity stuff. And actually, now that I say that, I have three theories on why it makes me so anxious. Mm. Um, and then the the second one that I listened to was like a woman is dating a man who's like 35 and she has never been to his house because he always comes to hers because he has roommates, but it turns out that his roommates are his father and his father's pregnant girlfriend who is younger than him and his mother comes home I don't, it's a very just like drama kind of soap opera ish thing and so um oh no I've listened to three because I listened to the one about the knitting the knitter the knitter who is so into uh natural wool but uses acrylic yeah yeah and I think the knitting one is the one that I was like I don't think I can keep doing this Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Cause I was going to say the, the grad school one made me feel like, uh, like the whole time I was listening to the first episode, I was enjoying it, but I was also part of me was like, just like, uh, and I know I'm just making noises, but what I'm trying to convey is the whole time I'm like, well, I don't no, no, no. Something bad's coming. No, 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 no. And then I feel like after that, that decrease it decreased for me. But if you're saying by the knitting one, that was even worse than it's not, then yeah, we're in different pages. So my theory is one, I feel like I'm a fairly awkward person and I soothe myself by saying nobody cares or is going to remember this or talk about it. And that helps me like get through my awkward life. But then here are these people just being so petty about so many tiny little things like, and then, and, oh, I bet they were the type of person who was wearing this, or I bet they were the type of person who said this I was like, oh my God, people are saying these things about me. And I can't tell myself that I am so much attention. Yes. Yes. Like, why are they paying so much attention? And so, um, that is part of it for sure. Cause I agree with, I agree with, see, I didn't put that together in any way. But I agree with you that I have to live in the world and just, just, tr- just believing that I am not perceived by other people. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, they're not watching. Yo, you, you just did this dumb thing and then talk to yourself about it. But look, all these people around you are in their own worlds. They're worried about their own things. They're not paying attention to you. Like yeah. that is the thing I, I tell I myself can't, a lot. I can't live in a world where people, I was going to say, I can't live in a world where people care about me. And that sounds very sad, but like where people perceive me and think about me who aren't like my direct loved ones kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. I don't want to think about them thinking about me. Like I don't want to, and I, I don't think I can function if I do think about that. So that made me very anxious to be like, Oh my God, I am certain, certain, certain that people have had these conversations about me. And I like, I don't even care if it's people who know me having those conversations. Like, I don't care if people gossip about me. I'm sure that they do, but it's more like the people who don't like 
if people who've just kind of seen me from afar and like make, because the other thing that bothers me, the other thing that bothers me about, about the podcast that made me really anxious was that um, the episode in particular, I think this was the problem with the yarn one was that the guest that was on was just making so many assumptions about the people and they were doing it for fun, right? They're like, oh yeah, I know this type within like 12 seconds. And so like that kind of like, just, I, it just made me feel like, oh, like I don't want that. I don't want to be in a world where you're like, oh, yep, I've got you figured out. I've got you pegged. I've got you put. And, and, you know, they were doing it for fun. And the people who were in it are like, you know, they anonymize the story. You're just sort of making it like it, it's not hurting anybody, but I do think that there's something. It is a mindset though. Yeah. Yeah. About like fixing people in this particular and then using the story to justify your own narratives about them. It just felt kind of icky, I guess. I see that. I did not see that when I was listening to it, but I see that. I also just, maybe these stories just aren't even true, right? Like maybe they're just completely made up and fine, but let's, for the sake of argument, say that they are not, somebody truly did call in and say, so what was happening was, is that the person who was sending in the things for the podcast, they were a friend of the person that it happened to. And they were kind of like, oh my God, can you believe my friends being so dumb? Can you believe they've gotten themselves into this situation or whatever? But like, if this podcast gets big, like they're not going to be anonymous. And so then the other thing that just made me feel really like anxious is like, oh God, what if the friend who called their friend in confidence to try to like get through this thing, especially like the one with the boyfriend in the house, then hears on this podcast, oh, you wrote my story into a podcast with the goal of making fun of me. I don't know. It just makes me so anxious. (laughs) I'm like retroactively anxious about it. Yeah. Sorry. I don't mean to ruin the podcast. Well, I've already listened to it. Okay. So, okay. No, I, cause I, that's so interesting. Cause when you told me, oh, it's making me you anxious. I was spinning my wheels and spinning my wheels and being like, why? But that makes so much sense. And that hits a lot of anxieties I have about being perceived about trust. I hate right? about trust. I hate it when people, you know, putting, saying, I know you, I know your type. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't think that's the thing in the world that we should do. Yeah. Oh, Michelle, I'm sorry I made you anxious. And thank you for, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) So, yeah, there's my, (laughs) that's my pop culture thing. A follow up to yours. And I I get it. They were having fun. And like, I wanted them to be having fun. And I, I don't know. I think. You don't need to defend it. Yeah. You you made yeah. perfect sense that, right. That that's, that's kind of what we talked about before you listened to it, that this moral quandary of what is gossip, but maybe you being uncomfortable helps us understand what gossip is more and that it is. Yeah. There's a reason it's kind of seen as bad sometimes. <laughs> My research is, for for reasons that will become clear, kind of under-researched, but I think it's interesting that I couldn't get answers, and I think there's a reason for that. So I was listening, you know, since I can never have a second of silence in my life, 
I was listening to NPR and I cannot remember what was happening on NPR, but they said a phrase and they're like, everyone knows this phrase, but I had never heard it. And it actually made me stop and go, that's really beautiful. And it's so simple. And it's a French phrase. I'm going to slaughter the French, which is, it's originally French, which is uh, to comprende, say to pardonner, which is basically to understand all is to forgive all. Okay. I've never heard that either. No, but it just, usually I'm, I don't really, you know, I'm thinking, I'm doing other things. NPR is on in the background. So that really stopped me to understand all is to forgive all. So is the idea then that every act could be justified if you just understood deeply enough where the person was coming from? If you knew everything, you would forgive everything. And it just, at first I was like, yes, of course. It's so simple and so beautiful. Absolutely. But then of course my mind starts spinning and being like, well, there are mass horrors in the world. And and then it made me think, but are there some things we just, uh, that are ununderstandable? Mm, so so then it's unforgivable. No, maybe, maybe. Cause it, it, it has a bit of a feel of the like, well, everything happens for a reason, you know, like. Right. It's been stuck in my head, that phrase. And I've been thinking through it. I loved it. Then I didn't. And I think I came out on the end of, at first it seems very beautiful. And I would like to live in a world where that could be true and mass atrocities aren't committed. But um, I don't know. We do. But anyway, what was interesting then was I, it's just been stuck in my head. So I said, Hey, let's research it. Why not? That's what the research thing on this podcast is for. for, right? And the last so, time you researched a phrase, we had a like four episode series on <laughs> resurrecting snowmen. So the possibilities are endless. We'll see. We'll see. Um, this could have gone a lot further. We have an excellent grab bag research thing. So I cut myself short, but I will put a link in the show notes and just open this research up to you. Cause it went in a direction I was not expecting. So basically I can't find out much about this. It is almost so vague to be like, well, yeah, of course it's been around forever. Right. Um, but it does get misattributed hard and who is it attributed to? It's very fascinating to try to find an attribution for a quote that it, or, you know, uh, what would this be? Uh, an aphorism? An aphorism. How do you find attribution for an aphorism? And we live in a day and age where quotes and aphorisms get vastly mis- misattributed all the time. Often with very pointed political goals, like this mm. person is this type of person. Yeah, yeah. Going back to just do this type of person. Um, so most often, I mean, it, this is attributed to like the Buddha a lot, but he didn't speak French. Um, and then it's also, it is most commonly attributed to Leo Tolstoy. Okay. But it he didn't originate it. It's from before him um, because it is in War and Peace. He said it, he puts it in War and Peace. Um, it's been attributed to Goethe. It's been attributed to George Sand. 
Um, but it's older than all of that. And, you know, honestly, it's probably just a collective thing, right? It's yeah. an aphorism that people said a lot. It shifted and shifted. The way like you can't say where a slang term originated, right? Like it exactly. got picked up. Like obviously somebody had to say it first the way that every, but like, how would you say like where? Yeah. But if I was gonna, if someone forced me and if I was gonna give it an attribution, what I could track it back to best. And again, I, I don't think this is who originally said it, but I found another person it was attributed to who was earlier than Tolstoy, earlier than Goethe, earlier than George Sand, not earlier than the Buddha, but I just fell into a rabbit hole from this person when I was just looking up whose names, whose names. And so this person came up and just fascinating. And I do not have time to tell you how fascinating they are, but I had never heard of them. And I want to give you the highlights and invite everyone to look into this person. And why don't we know about her? Because the world really did know about her for a long time. Some of the greatest minds of modern times are like, she's the greatest mind of all time. And yet I've never heard of her. So it's this woman named Anne Louise Germain de Stahl. Never heard of her. And she was a really big figure in France, especially at the height of the French Revolution. She had to flee the terror when that happened. Um, and so she came from a fairly wealthy family and her father was notable for being um, in charge of the treasury of France. He really believed everyone had a right to know what was happening with the money and how the king was spending it. And he made it public. He made those documents public. And some people attribute that to like something that really did kick off the French Revolution. And so that was her father, Anne-Louise Germain de Stahl's father. She also just helped lead the French Revolution in a lot of ways. Women were very active in the French Revolution. And I like teaching that, but I won't get into that now. Um, she was an intellectual power couple with Benjamin Constant, who was a notable figure at the time. And the way they met, she was married, but it was France and people, you know, mistress was an official position at court. So it wasn't a huge deal. Um, Benjamin Constant was a notable figure, a theorist, a writer, a poet, and he had decided he was going to kill himself. And he told everyone, I'm going to kill myself. And before I do, though, I want to meet this woman. I've heard so much about her. I want to go meet her. And so he went to meet her and they fell in love. And so he did not kill himself. And they wrote a lot of um, really important manifestos and tracks together. Um, she is also noted by many historians, like just widely, people don't argue about it, that she was one of the very first people to see what was going to happen with Napoleon, to be like, Napoleon's not good, guys. No. And she was exiled really, really early on because she was starting to speak out against Napoleon. When Thomas Jefferson went to France and did his France thing, she was one of his primary hosts and led most of the salons that he attended. Ralph Waldo Emerson quotes her constantly. Herman Melville called her the greatest woman of all time. 
She apparently loved throwing people out of windows and overboard from boats and did that constantly. Um, Byron also talks about her constantly. There's even, he made, there's like a very famous French joke that I, I did not get. It's about boredom and wrestling, but it's based on her. And if you like tell people this joke today in France, they know it. And Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy. And this is, I think, an interesting connection because most people attribute to understand all is to forgive all to Tolstoy in War and Peace, but Tolstoy credits her in the epilogue to War and Peace and says she's an influential force of humanity. He calls her an influential force of humanity. So I think maybe Tolstoy got it from her. Um, and so this person, just all these great men of history, right? Like are so influenced by her and yet we don't know who she is. And I think that tells us a lot about what we choose to forget in history. But recently she came up, um, more recently, Republican activist Victor Gold quoted her when he was characterizing American Vice President Dick Cheney. He said, men do not change, they unmask themselves. And that's, that, that is a quote that we can attribute to her. So she gets used all sorts of ways. And Louise Germaine de Stahl. And like I said, there's so much more that isn't even scratching the surface of her life. But I just really, really, really got excited to learn about her while I was trying to learn more about the aphorism to understand all is to forgive all. And so you're just telling us it's worth a deep dive. Yeah, this is this is right. This is us using our, our teacher time management to say, you should really go investigate that. Okay. What is your research thing? Oh, I'm going to try to rein it in because I know we've already been talking for a long time, but I, yeah. Okay. We started this off being like, this is going to be such a quick one. I am reading a book that I actually texted you and was like, you should read this. And then I texted you back. And I was like, no, never mind. Said, don't. No, don't read it. Yeah. So I am reading a book titled Humankind by Rutger Bregman, who is also the author of Utopia for Realists, which I read and thought was pretty good. Um, so I'm going to show you the cover. What's the mood you get from this cover? How does um, it feel? It makes me feel happy. It's bright. It makes me think of like a fun Instagram infographic that's telling me how to recycle better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very nicely done. Um, it says here, it has a little, little subtitle of a hopeful history. And then, um, we've got some quotes on here. People magazine called it the riveting pick me up. We all need right now. The guardian said bold and thought provoking the sapiens of this year. The New Yorker says a lively social history. Bregman offers a compelling case for reshaping institutions and policies along genuinely humane lines. And I was like, okay, so we are reading this because the group of parents of the children, I know I've mentioned this like every time that I've done this podcast forever, but it just it is. It's also you know, an amazing concept. So I like reiterating it because I think more people should do it. So the group of parents that run the nonfiction club for the kids who are reading Sapiens have been having lots of conversations growing out of Sapiens and kind of where we're thinking about it. We're like, oh, we should we should start a parallel book club where we're reading some stuff that we can talk about. And so we've been reading this book. And our idea here was that we were kind of frustrated with the 
idea that is in Sapiens, but is certainly not generated there or unique to it. But it's almost this idea that like the agricultural revolution represents sort of the fall of man, right? That like we had it so great. We were living it up as hunter gatherers. Life was wonderful. And then we made a bad bargain with wheat and agriculture. And now we've been paying for it every, ever since, right? And like, I mean, Yuval Noah Harari makes that argument explicitly. Like basically in the, in the Sapiens graphic novel, wheat is represented as like the, um, like a little devil that has tr tricked the humans into planting it, right? And so, um, so we've just been really talking about how there's this overarching idea that ever since the agricultural revolution, humans have been terrible, right? That we used to be better and now we are terrible and we have fallen. And so we were like, you know, I don't know that that history is really a complete picture or that that's the most accurate way to think about humanity. And so we were like, oh, a hopeful history. This is going to be sort of a look at a different way of considering those facts. Um, the cover and, tells me so. Those blurbs tell me so. Yeah, yeah, right. It, what is the, the riveting pick me up we all need right now? I'm just gonna give you a couple, from People Magazine. From People Magazine, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some chapter titles. Which R.I.P. People Magazine. They are not doing print anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Well, until they, you know, like mall culture, it'll come back. <gasps> yeah. I think it has to, right? So many magazines don't do print anymore, but we're going to want it. So part one is called The State of Nature. And the I have not read this whole book. I have read 250 pages of it, which makes me feel capable of being, I, I'm, I'm this far, 250 pages in, I feel like I have enough of the, I, I feel like I can speak to it. Sorry. Right. All right, so part one is called The State of Nature, and it starts with the rise of homo puppy, which is a little grating. And the idea here, he kind of compares, you know, the wolf or the um, fox experiment where they just bred the foxes yes. for their um, for their positive, for the friendliness, right? And they bred foxes for friendliness, and they basically um, became sort of juvenile foxes, and they they sort of became a different species, right? They, they looked different. They got spots. They had like floppier ears, even without any interaction. And they just became, they kind of domesticated themselves, right? So there's this theory that the reason that Homo sapiens survived while Neanderthals did not, or the other sapiens species did not, is not because we murdered them all, but because we were better at socializing. We've talked about that on here because they found the tooth in the cave that suggested that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like it starts out with like an actual kind of hopeful retelling, but that is pre-agriculture, right? Like that is, that is, you know, wait. So it doesn't really restart. Like it does, like he basically picks up the same theory. Like he kind of gives the theory, not that we, you know, murdered all of the other sapiens, but that we just kind of lucked out. Right. And we lucked out because of our social, um, our social abilities. And that is actually, um, a theory. I read a book called a dog in the cave, which is, a you know, it's, it's a, young like a I read it with a group of middle schoolers I teach a lot of middle schoolers so I'm not just always reading middle school literature but I read a lot of it um but they have the theory that the domestication of wolves into dogs was actually like a co-domestication like that right we were working Which sapien says too right yeah, yeah yeah 
And so that, that, that kind of social ability of dogs and humans went hand in hand and that we helped each other survive, right? And that those social skills were so crucial to that. And so, um, you know, that is pre-agriculture, but he is doing kind of what the book said and retelling that history in a more hopeful way, saying it wasn't that we were terrible murderers, it's that we are super friendly. And then he starts retelling sort of, um, he questions the narrative of like the Lord of the Flies because the actual, the real story of the Lord of the Flies where there was a bunch of kids who got shipwrecked on an island is that they basically just made it a little utopia and really took care of each other really well. And then he talks about um, the game show that redid the uh, prison experiment, you know, the Zimbardo's prison, famous prison yeah. experiment. So he, he digs deep into that because it's supposed to demonstrate that people are terrible, right? That if right. given the chance, power, they yeah, will be power completely corrupts and that they will terrorize each other and that it's just awful. But he digs deep into it and finds out that like Zimbardo was really doing some pretty unethical stuff. They were, they were telling the guards what to do and that nobody and everybody in there knew they were part of an experiment. So like everybody was playing roles and not really like, it, it just, he's really questioning what can you really tell about humanity from this right and then he talks about how there was a game show that tried to remake it and was like oh we're gonna up the, we're gonna show all this drama and then when they went to record it like they basically just the guards and the prisoners started like hanging out together and having beer together and they basically made like a commune and so he's he's questioning all of these assumptions that human nature is so bad right and like right. so it starts out i'm like okay okay but you're not really, but he keeps saying like, so what makes it bad is like the collective or, you know, it wasn't corrupted until the rulers told them like the rulers are also people. So if you don't like, if you're not, so I think it just basically picks up the same argument, which is that if you, um, if you have this sort of collective power or agriculture, the hierarchies of agriculture, that then people are terrible, right? That those that we can't be good in a large group, right? And that is sort mm-hmm. of the same argument. And I just, yeah. I, I mean, I understand that there's probably some evidence for that because we have done terrible things in huge groups, but I also just don't find it very useful because like, we're not going back to being hunters gatherers because we would, right. like, millions and millions of people would starve to death. And that I like, so unless you're just calling for, mass genocide what you're talking about isn't i i don't know i just don't find i don't find the conversation very useful or interesting when it just turns into well and now that we're all in a big group we're terrible i'm like okay i don't yeah. i don't buy that argument and i don't know what i'm supposed to do with it even if it was true i've gotten particularly annoyed with him because part 2 was called after auschwitz and he's like you have to be able to explain the holocaust if you're going to try to make an argument that people are not all bad right And it's in that section. So he starts talking about uh, Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition and talking about the banality of evil. And I was about to get like really annoyed because I really like Hannah Arendt. And I, oh yeah. And and he just seemed to be, so basically his MO is he takes a really well-known study. He explains what it was, what was happening in there. He pretends like he's a green with the conclusions they came to. And then he goes, but let me tell you about all the flaws in that study. And then, so we can't come to that conclusion. And I'm like, but that doesn't bring us to a different, like all you're doing is knocking down. I don't, it's just, you're not. That seems the anything. opposite 
yeah, that seems the opposite, not the opposite of hopeful, but it doesn't seem helpful. It, it, it shouldn't be called hopeful. It should be called like an a takedown of right, history. A takedown like, of and, I'm, history. and I'm like, we have plenty of those. Like, I don't like, that's just kind yeah. of what I don't, I don't know. Like, I just, I just wish. So all of these people who write in this style always um, like basically shit all over Malcolm Gladwell and are like, oh, what he does isn't real science. I'm like, Gladwell doesn't say what he's doing is real science. Gladwell says he is a storyteller who yeah. is looking for patterns in the world and puts them together in interesting ways, which is exactly what you're doing, but you're calling it science and you're annoyed at him because he's not. <laughs> yeah. It's so like, I just am very, very annoyed because I'm learning some interesting things in here. I'm learning interesting tidbits but they are not coming together in any cohesive whole. And they are certainly not presenting to me a hopeful history. I mean, the, the chapter titles for part two, which are after Auschwitz, are in the basement of Stanford University. So showing what really happened in the prison experiment. Stanley Milgram and the shock machine, which there was this machine where- um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, I'm sorry, I know, but were yeah. they- isn't that where they said, hey, push this button, and then they played recorded screams? Yes. And they they made some people think that they, like, killed, killed somebody. Them. Yeah. But he, when he looked deeper into that one, he's like, you know, were people really thinking they're killing somebody in the basement of this, like, university? And when they pulled people, like, people were like, no, I didn't think it was really hurting somebody. Like, I thought it was some sort of psychological experiment. I didn't, you know, like, because it's always got this, like, artifice around it, right? And, um... But what he really takes away from there is that most people only push the button when the when the person who was there was like, this is really going to help us with like this research. It's research into like, you know, um, these these mm. pain dis disorders. We're never going to learn any cures. We're never going to be able to help people if you don't help us. And so his big takeaway is that people do terrible things because they think they're being helpful, right? They think that they are, that you, that you can't get people to do terrible things out of a sense of power. You get them to do terrible things out of a sense of help. So he's ultimately bringing it back to this, like we are, our social, like the, our, our social strengths can be turned against us and be used as tools. I'm like, okay, but turned against us by whom? Because those are I people. <laughs> Like it's, that's it's the beast. Be turned against us by people who want to prove it can be turned against us, so they're turning it against us. And then part three, the chapter titles for part three, which I'm going to remind you, this is subtitled "A Hopeful History." The chapter titles for part three are "How Empathy Blinds," "How Power Corrupts," and "What the Enlightenment Got Wrong." Oh no, I am not here. Sorry, I'm very triggered due to the Supreme Court nomination hearings right now with they're bringing up. Did you read originally the whole like critical thinking starts with enlightenment? It's all Kant's fault. Did you read that insanity? There was an article, I forget where, that they're like when when like critical race theory first started to get demonized. Um and so they're like, well, critical race theory comes from like critical thinking. We can't have any of that. No, but it is. That's what it is now. Like Ted Cruz was fucking slipping up and being like, no critical thinking. Um, but anyway, there was this article done that it was like, well, and that started with the enlightenment. And then they blame Kant for everything. Um, and at the hearing, they were verbatim quoting that article. 
for yeah. Oh. So no, that actually makes me very distrustful of that book if they're playing that game. Well, and so I haven't even gotten to my specific research. Yet. I'm so <laughs> sorry. So I wanted to talk. I'll try to. I'll try to make it fast. I want to talk specifically about his arguments in the how empathy blinds section. So he is making the argument, which I get so annoyed by, because he makes the argument in this chapter that empathy is, I'm trying to find the, the right quote for it, that empathy is too limited of a tool and that it is not really helpful in making us kinder. And I, I think there's some truth to what he's saying. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, there's definitely truth to that. That, let me see if I can find the exact quote. If anything, empathy makes us less forgiving because the more we identify with victims, the more we generalize about our enemies. The bright spotlight we shine on our chosen few makes us blind to the perspective of our adversaries because everybody else falls outside of our view. So that how empathy kind of helps support sort of in-group, out-group thinking and that maybe empathy is not as good of a tool as it should be, right? Like Directly contradicting the quote, to understand all is to forgive all. Yes. Although I guess, actually, actually, that quote's going to go really well with what happens next. <laughs> yes. Um, but in the very next chapter, which is called How Power Corrupts, he talks about how, actually, there's the quote. So he's talking about how, um, like, Machiavellian theories on power have never been proven, even though tons and tons of people have used them to, like, show this is how you get power. It's like, actually, that's not how you get power. Uh, the individuals who rise to positions of power, Keltner found, are the friendliest and the most empathetic. It's survival of the friendliest. So in the very next chapter, he's using empathy as like this great marker of the personalities who should be put into power as opposed to the Machiavellian ones when he just spent an entire chapter telling us how empathy blinds us. So I just, I'm, I'm very annoyed because it's just like if I, I got my teacher hat on and I'm like, what thesis are you using? Because you are not sticking to one and you don't just get to make up a different one every chapter. Like that's not a book. That's not, that's not how this works. But all that aside, that made me, I was like, like, is empathy a good thing or a bad thing? I'm kind of curious. So I wanted to go and do some research on that. I'm going to try to shorten this because I, um, I read. I can point you towards some essays I have authored and co-authored. <laughs> <laughs> I did not pull up any of your research in these. That's fine. I, I don't know. I don't know how thrilled, yeah, you would be with the outcomes it's mainly about virtual reality it's not relevant to this discussion i'm i'm interested i want to hear what you how you you weigh in on this i found an article by Kristen neff um who is an associate professor of human development who basically makes the argument that um it's not compassion fatigue that is happening to so many like social workers and therapists and nurses anybody who's having to give like direct care um, and this is an older article, so this is not specifically in re in relation to the pandemic and the burnout so many people are feeling. So I would say it's even more relevant right now. Um, but she's saying that it is not compassion fatigue, as we so often say that it is, that it's actually empathy fatigue. So she's saying that we have to learn how to be empathetic to ourselves, that we have to. So she says, our brains actually have specialized mirror neurons designed for this purpose. Mirror neurons evolved to help us quickly know if someone is friend or foe by registering feelings such as anger or friendliness in our own bodies. The problem for caregivers is that when we're in the presence of suffering, we feel it in our own bodies. And so like that, 
that if you are empathizing too much with the people that you're caring for, the empathy neurons that are firing, it's going to like deplete you. Right. Um, so the main thing I took away from her article was that this empathy is actually like, it has a biological mechanism. It's not just, you know, something that you cultivate as a thought process, but there is an actual like neurological explanation. Yeah. 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 And then Um, I read this New Yorker article from 2013 by Paul Bloom article is subtitled the case against empathy though as we just found out maybe subtitles mean nothing so I don't know right Um, right. (laughs) but this is only an article not a whole book so hopefully he can stay on topic long enough to like get to that conclusion Um, but he's basically he's arguing again that like empathy is ineffective and that uh, I'm trying to find a good a good quote that kind of sums it up a bit I mean, honestly, I feel like we've called, we've done a callback to this like a hundred times in our 31 episodes, but he says the number of victims hardly matters. There is little psychological difference between hearing about the suffering of 5,000 and that of 500,000. Imagine reading that 2000 people just died in an earthquake in a remote country. And then discovering that the actual number of deaths was 20,000. Do you now feel 10 times worse to the extent that we can recognize numbers as significant? It's beyond, it's because of reason, not empathy. And so it reminds me of the juggling thing, right? Like we can't, you know, you're like, oh, well, that's a lot of things to juggle. Um, you know, I don't think we can bring that up too much. I think especially with COVID deaths, it's, and, and, and the, just so much, right. The war in Ukraine. And I think that's where, so this is his conclusion. Such are the paradoxes of empathy. The power of this faculty has something to do with its ability to bring our moral concern into a laser pointer of focused attention, which he doesn't say here, but I would also say, and then action, right? Like, I think that's the implied sense, right? If a planet of billions is to survive, however, we'll need to take into consideration the welfare of people not yet harmed and even more of people not yet born. They have no names, faces, or stories to grip our conscience or stir our fellow feeling. Their prospects call rather for deliberation and calculation. Our hearts will always go out to the baby in the well. It's a measure of our humanity, but empathy will have to yield to reason if humanity is to have a future. And I think that my problem with him is that I don't think it's yielding to reason. Like, why is it always, Yeah. why is it always a dichotomy? Like, why is yes. it always a, well, you're gonna have to put your empathy away and put your reason in its place. Like, why can't I use them? together and that's I think that is my entire fight with Bregman too is like why can't it be that we have the capacity to be bad and the capacity to be good and that it's not that our nature is one or the other at its core and that we have to make the choices to decide where we're gonna go and like I just I, I feel like there's so much essentializing to all of this that is like we yes. have to get to the essential core of it. I'm like, what if there is no essential core and that the answer yeah. is just that we're a mess and we got to sit in the mess? Like, what right. if what if that's where? And that's why I think that this article by C. Daryl Cameron called Can You Run Out of Empathy, which was a response to Bloom's New Yorker article, is a much better one. And I will put this so that you can link it in the show notes. Um, and so they they're they're writing here is empathy like a fossil fuel first consider the claim that empathy is enumerate a word that suggests empathy is a fixed and limited resource like oil or natural gas 
Many scholars from Buddhist monks to utilitarian philosophers have argued that we should expand our moral circles and extend empathy to all beings. Yet Bloom suggests that, quote, our best hope for the future is not to get people to think of all humanity as family. That's impossible. He has an intriguing point. If we are incapable of empathizing with all beings, then empathy may not be the safest basis for universal moral rules. But then this argument goes on to say that like, they just think that that premise is false, right? They think that the idea that we're limited in that way um, so they say, my research builds on these findings and extends them to large scale crises, such as the unrest in Darfur, as I've described in an earlier piece for greater good, how to expand your compassion bandwidth. My work suggests that the identifiable victim effect is due to an active choice to turn off empathy. But if you get people to think that empathy for others won't be costly, they don't show the identifiable victim effect. Thus, motivation seems to matter. And only people who can skillfully control their emotions show this effect. So emotion regulation seems to matter as well. So basically, I mean, my oversimplification of this sophisticated argument is like, you've got to recognize what a complex being you are and learn how to manage your shit in order to do a good job in a com complicated world. Like you can't, you're never gonna get to just say, okay, I figured it out. And now I get to go live about my merry way. Like it, you've got to do the yeah. work day in and day out like you don't get to just choose a path and be well, like okay I'm on the settled. good one now yeah you're not I very firmly believe that you there aren't good people there aren't good bad people and they're just actions and those change every day right you can commit you can do bad things and then you can do good things and it's a choice and you have to make that choice and and you got to make it over and over and over again. Over and, you don't, and over again. You don't get to and like gets, hold up your good person trophy right. and be done. Like you just, you don't. Exactly. Exactly. And there, there's no one that has only done good things. There's no one that's, that's a David Bowie song. I'm quoting there, right? I've never done good things. I've never done bad things. I've never done anything out of the blue. Oh, woo woo. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'll just quote David Bowie. There we go. That's yeah. that might be the fortune cookie ahead of time. I've never just done the lyrics anything. to that. Never done I've good never, things. Never done bad things. I've never chopped I've up never done anything out of <laughs> right. But like, yeah. Also, yes. I know you're being funny, but it's like, um, yeah, it's hard. It's like I can know that the fact that I feel more about a single Ukrainian baby than I do about all of them is a problem but I still feel that way and it, I can then also take actions that are beyond my feelings but feelings are a strong motivator yeah I mean you can take yeah exactly exactly you can go oh look my empathy has been sparked let me kick my reason in to figure out what to do with that feeling to do the most good right like yes helping that one child is probably not the best use of my energy how can I take the feeling and the motivation that I have in this moment and apply it broad, more broadly? Why can't yeah. that be the answer? Like, why exactly. do we have to constantly try? I just, I mean, it, it seems like the hopeful history book should just be called people, people, good or bad. Question and he's trying mark. to find an answer. Or maybe just people, good and bad. <laughs> like, you know, like I mean, just, that, yeah. That's a very frustrating. Yeah. And those that that 
the 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 lineup you just gave of of the mirror neurons paul bloom and the next one yeah it's 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 something that i've spun my wheels about a lot and have well and i don't want to be so flippant because like i know these are smart people doing lots of important research but like why do we have to make the answer so much more complicated than i think the answer is like thank you exactly like, I, I just i don't think this is that hard i don't and maybe it's because like i'm in the humanities where we just never get to have real answers that i'm just like <laughs> no, no we don't get to have like we don't get to have a real answer what like that's yeah you're like no yeah probably maybe one maybe the other probably both or neither yeah i don't know pick one you'll either yeah. be right or wrong right like <laughs> right and wrong right and wrong some people are going to think you're right. Some people are going to think you're wrong. I guess you'll have to wait and see who comes out on top and writes the history books. Yeah. <laughs> then we get into Walter Benjamin. As much as you like to quote the juggling, I need to shut up about Benjamin. I think uh, I'll end it there. <laughs> I could talk and talk and talk and talk. This is... just... New spinoff podcast, Empathy. <laughs> Good or bad. <laughs> We oh, still yeah. have everyone. Yes, get ready. Um, a graphic. I think. This might be, I think this might be up there with like our Thanksgiving episode from two years ago as one of our longest ever. This is quality. This is quality grab bag. This grab bag was sent to us. As I said, it's linked to the weird thing. Yes, it by is. Anonymous, it a anonymous bosh, biosh. Um, and I have to say, I just, if anybody, you know, write to our infrequently checked email address if anyone wants this because this is a this is a piece of art it is a literally and figuratively a beautiful essay honestly i know i opened it up and i'm like i wish i got this level from my art history students (laughs) of care and paper writing um so what i'm going to read i just want to describe it for everyone is it has it has images it has citations i am very excited so it has sources and i will share the sources with everyone but if everyone wants the full experience with images and text let us know right to our agreement agreement podcast at gmail.com and we will only let you have it we will trade it for grab bags (laughs) it'll be a grab bag bonus okay So this is grab bag research thing tied to a weird thing. Rosa Bonhor, the 19th century feminist Tiger King artist. Intrigued. I'm intrigued. I have not read this yet. Everyone, we're I'm we're just kind of have you read or have you just glanced through it? I have just glanced through it. We are we are experiencing it with you. I want you need to know fresh. So it starts with a beautiful painting. I do know Rosa Bonhor, who's a painter. And she paints cows like nobody's business. And it starts with a beautiful, beautiful image of Highland Scottish cows, which look not unlike Wooly Bully that we previously heard about. And some sheep. 
some sheep. It is a beautiful bucolic Scottish Highland scene. So I will read. We have a cattle herd with some Scottish Highland cattle. There are many paintings of these majestically shaggy and powerful animals with long curved horns. They look fierce, but they are very gentle. One of my favorite artists has a wonderfully atmospheric painting called The Highland Raid, where two 19th century Highlanders are driving a herd of Scottish Highland cattle across a foggy rain-swept hill. In the center are two Highland bulls with their heads high, sensing that something is amiss. I love it. And I will say, so do I. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I first saw it in a magazine tucked into the back of an airplane seat while traveling to Britain. I love the painting, but I knew nothing about the artist. Her name is Rosa Bonhoeur. It turns out that her life is even more wondrous and atmospheric than her painting. Rosa Bonhoeur was born in 1822 in Bordeaux, France. She was trained. That's actually interesting. I didn't actually realize she was French for some reason. So I am learning things that I should have already known. She was trained as an artist by her father, Raymond Bonhoeur, who was an art teacher and a follower of the social theorist, Henri de Saint-Simon. Saint-Simon professed that society should be controlled by a meritocracy of the working class, striving for universal harmony and sexual equality. Her father taught and lived this philosophy while raising his daughter after her mother's early death. Her father was a director for the only available free drawing school for girls that had been founded in Paris under state sponsorship in 1803. Rosa Bonheur recalled, quote, This was, I believe, the first pronounced step in a course which my father always pursued, named co-education. I was generally a leader in all the games. I did not hesitate now and again to use my fists. A masculine bent was given to my existence, end quote. After her father's death, Rosa Bonher took over his position as head of the school. So Rosa Bonher was raised in an atmosphere of liberal egalitarianism acted out in practical terms. As a result, she ignored convention throughout her life. Horror of horrors. She wore trousers, <gasps> rode horses, <gasps> astride, ah, and smoked cigars. <gasps> and I will say, I'm adding this in. She had to carry a license to wear pants. What is it? I'm just picturing like the... um. You know, Parks and Rec, when Ron just pulls the thing out of his pocket and says, I do what I want. I can do what I want. I'm just imagining <laughs> that being the like. Pants when I pants. Pants, pants, pants. No. But yeah, she like, you know, there were rules about women wearing pants and she got like a dispensation so she could wear trousers. Um, eventually, she was one of the few 19th century women who managed to obtain police authorization to go. dress in clothes. Sorry, sorry. Of course, of course, you knew this grab bagger. I apologize. Were traditionally worn by peasant men ostensibly for reasons of health. That's I mean, how she got away with it. I These can permit dresses against my health. Yeah, exactly. These permits were called un permission de travestiment. Rosa Bonhoeur particularly admired the writer George Sand. <gasps> we mentioned Sand. George Sand really liked my gal, aka Amentine Lucille Aurore Dupuis who was one of the other women who had the same type of official permission to cross-dress. And oh, then we have a picture, picture of it. It's way cooler than the, I can do what I want letter. Yeah. There's like a stamp seal. There's many signatures. It's very cool. Again, if you want to take a look at this, send us a grab, bag. a grab bag. But Rosa Bonhoeur's garb was a mere reflection of the egalitarian freedom she created for herself in a male dominated world. 
She rejected the path chosen for her by her father, who sought to apprentice her as a seamstress. Rosa's rebellious nature and her love for drawing convinced her father to take her into his studio to teach her painting. This was no easy choice for when women did not make their way in the art in the world through art. And I will say again, just a side note, because this is so in my wheelhouse, that yeah, if you go and look at pretty much any pre 20th century famous woman artist, her dad was a painter and, and didn't have sons. And that's why she got to be a painter. Um, this began Rosa Bonheur's career as an impressive and important artist in a time when there were very few women professional artists. Bonheur had a lifelong companion, quote unquote, by the name of Natalie Micus. Rosa met her when her father was commissioned to paint Natalie's portrait. Bonheur was 14 at the time, and later they lived together until Natalie's death. Rosa Bonheur endured society's curiosity and cruelty over her relationship with Natalie Micus, causing Bonheur to write, quote, had I been a man, I would have married her and nobody could have dreamed up all those silly stories. I would have had a family with my children as heirs and nobody would have any right to complain, end Aww. quote. I know. Natalie Micus later became an inventor in her own right, eventually patenting a railway braking system, which is patent 2596 from 1862. After Micus died in 1889, Bonhur met a young American painter, Anna Klumpke. Klumpke was already fascinated by Bonhur after they met, and she even owned a Rosa doll when she was a child. The two artists lived together until Bonhur's death in 1899. Rosa, Natalie, and Anna are all interned together Aww. in France. That's Aww. so nice. I have, now I have I have got to go visit that. Bonher displayed an early talent for drawing animals. She studied their anatomy, motion, personalities in stockyards, animal markets, horse fairs, even slaughterhouses, which were all the domains of men. At the slaughterhouses, her female and rather petite presence caused a stir. But this close study, along with her father's training to reject the sentimentalism of the romantic movement, led to the wonderful realism of Bonheur's works. In the Salon of 1841 in Paris, when Rosa wasn't even 20, she exhibited two paintings, Goats and Sheep and Rabbits Nibbling Carrots from 1840. That is, I, I love that title. She also won a medal at the Paris Salon in 1845. Bonner's best-known painting, The Horse Fair, painted on a grand scale measuring over eight feet by 16 and a half feet. It shows the horse market held in Paris. Bonner referred to it as her Parthenon Frieze. For 18 months, Bonner sketched at the horse market to create this masterwork. To avoid attention while making these sketches, she had to dress as a man. The horse fair became widely reproduced and Cornelius Vanderbilt eventually bought the original for $53,000 in March of 1887, which was a record sum at the time. Vanderbilt promptly donated it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And that painting just, we're looking at a computer image, but you can just see how rich these paintings are. They're just silky and fleshy and atmospheric. And I love them. I love looking at her work. This work won her a gold medal at the salon. This customarily would entitle her to receive a cross of the Legion of Honor, but she was denied this honor because she was a woman. She eventually became the first woman to be awarded the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honor in 1865. 
After the decline of 1853, she was declared horror de concord, probably not the correct pronunciation, which meant she could exhibit her work at the salon without submitting them for approval first, Ooh. which is yeah, a big deal. The, the Paris salon was no joke, man. The rules for that, oof. Rosa Bonheur and her father were fans of writer George Sand and Felicity Robert Lemonai, who both espoused the belief that every creature has a soul. As we witnessed with our cattle herds display of grief for Wooly Bully, this may well be true. This belief is also reflected in Bonheur's later portraits of animals, which are both realistic and convey a sense that you're looking into the animal's soul. Rosa Bonheur's love of animals caused her to ask the artist who painted her portrait if she, Rosa Bonheur, could remove the table the artist had painted in the portrait and in its place, Rosa painted in a bull below her arm so that it would appear that she was resting her painting arm along the bull's back. That is an amazing painting. We are looking at it now. And yeah, she has her painting tool in her hand and is draped over a very, very he has a lot of personality it's reminding me of your squirrel staring off into the i was just about to say like i want to know what he's thinking about i want to talk to him i want to talk to him more than bon Hor in that painting but she didn't paint herself now did she she painted she painted the bulls so that's where the talent is but her work was very popular and profitable so much so that in 1860, she bought an estate with a chateau near Fontainebleau. She was also famous. When Buffalo Bill Cody took his Wild West show to Paris in 1889, Bonhoeur befriended him and painted his portrait on horseback. But like many rich and famous people, she wanted lions and tigers. And this, I, I had no idea about this aspect. So she began to study and sketch lions that she raised on her estate in France. Reportedly, she treated the lionesses as if they were pet dogs. There are photos of her on the estate picnicking with the young lions. Rosa Bonheur was extremely famous during her lifetime and received many honors, medals, and awards from several countries. Royalty invited her to visit them, and royalty visited her at her chateau. While in Britain, visiting Queen Victoria, Bonheur toured Scotland and described it as, quote, superb country in spite of its melancholy mists for I prefer what is green. I love the scotch mists, the cloud-swept mountains, the dark heather. I love them with all my heart, end quote. This is a sensibility that is clearly shown in the Highland Rain painting. Some of Rosa Bonheur's work, although realistic, takes on almost a lyrical quality in its composition. A favorite of mine is Plowing in the Neverneye. Sorry, I keep going quiet because I really love looking at her work. Again, email us a grab bag to see. I'm going to pretend that Google doesn't exist. Its composition, as well as others such as plowing, remind me of Thomas Hart Benton's paintings of working class struggles, as if Benton was channeling Bon Hoare on psychedelics. (laughs) And now there is a picture of Thomas Hart Benton's plowing it under, which that is an excellent description that it's like yeah trip trippy rosa kind of like dolly-ish and the like the shapes of the thing gets or, yeah like yeah. stretched out almost starry starry night too oh that's cool that juxtap- i would give this paper a very good grade. yeah hey i love a good compare and contrast 
Rosa Bonheur's painting methods were also radical for her time. She painted outdoors en plein air to capture a true likeness and the most beautiful light. This was a relatively unusual method at the time, but it later influenced Impressionist artists such as Monet and Camille Pizarro. Ironically, it was Impression that would eventually overshadow her own work as Impression took flower in the public's as Impressionism took flower in the public's imagination. Bonheur's realistic works fell out of favor. Asher Miller, a curator in the Department of European Paintings at the Met, remarked about the passing of Bonheur's popularity. Artists were now judged and appreciated for being cutting edge in the march towards the triumph of modern art. But Bonheur would remain largely oblivious and even hostile to contemporary art. She became forgotten. Ooh, there's, a, there's a connection. Uh, Rosa Bonheur has now gained renewed interest because of her feminism. Google even made a doodle day to celebrate her 200th birthday. Oh. Although Bonheur's feminism grew from a post-French revolution sense of entitlement and freedom, it was still tethered to middle-class propriety. She often reverted to traditional women's dress when out in society, and she attributed her cross-dressing to convenience rather than a political statement. Her feminism and life story are endlessly fascinating. It's a deep, deep rabbit hole that shines a light on the sensibilities of the 19th century and how women struggled to have society respect and become comfortable with free thinking and acting women. Rosa Bonheur demonstrated by her life that women are free to achieve in their own right and to live as they choose. But yet it's her art that draws you in to her fascinating tale. Met curator Asher Miller noted that, quote, there's something that strikes you with awe when you stand in front of the horse fair painting. There's an ambitious spirit of modernity that is undeniable and resonates today. You don't have to know anything about art history to appreciate it. It's undoubtedly one of the most popular paintings in the Met. Both Rosa Bonheur's art and her feminism speaks to us even now. Oh, yay. Yay. I feel like I learned a lot. I and learned I, a ton and I'm just keep looking at these paintings. They're fantastic. They are. I am someone who loves contemporary art. That's what I do. That's, that's, that's my area of study is contemporary. And I am not one for landscapes. I hate impressionism. I'm so sorry to everyone that likes it. And yet when I lived in England, there was a lot of Bonhoeffer paintings around. I could stand in front of one of those for just forever I you could get lost in those they're so gorgeous and I really like the attention to the the animals personalities because that's definitely one of the most striking things like even the so there's people in like the first one um what is the name of this one the Highland, Highland Raid Highland Raid like there are people in the background but they are very much in the background like you they don't have any facial expressions they're very much just kind of like blobs right and the animals are so detailed and their eyes are so expressive and their their body language is so expressive and I think that's similar to the way that I mean there's more detail to the people's faces in um the horse fair but they are definitely like the animals are just the getting the expressive qualities yeah it's the inverse of usually when there are people and animals in paintings Well, thank you so much, Anonymous. I love it. I love, yeah. 
I, I hate animal paintings and yet she is one of my favorite. Well, she, I mean, there's just so much, I mean, I don't want to say there's so much humanity in those animals. Cause that's probably not being fair to the animals in there, but like, there is so much personality and expression. Like it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So that ties in so well. I feel like, okay, let's wrap up. Let's recap. Let's recap. recap. All right. thing i talked about how dogs can dogs also have the placebo effect like humans and i talked about hammerhead worms and how you're supposed to kill them when you see them (sighs) but only in very specific ways and then we learned from anonymous grab beggar that about cow funerals cow funerals and then my pop culture was malls Yes, no, What's they're back. That? What's up with that? I'm old and I want to go to a mall. <laughs> um, but also really, really go read Rax King's Tacky and look at the archive that is the Gap Playlists blog. And my pop culture was that the podcast Normal Gossip nearly gave me an anxiety attack. <laughs> and then we get to research and my research was the aphorism to understand all is to forgive all trying to track that down. And then really learning about the very, very interesting woman Anne Louise Germain de Stale. Sorry, I'm typing. I can't spell her name. I'll figure it out. All right. And then my research thing was a rant about Rutger Bregman's not so well-titled humankind, a hopeful history specifically an exploration of whether empathy is a good thing or a bad thing and my belief that we shouldn't limit ourselves to such dichotomies and then we had the excellent rosabon horror research from anonymous group bag all right that's eight things to tie together at least at least the grab beggar did it's very cow related Yes, yes but i will say that in the grab bag things, I feel like there's forking paths. There's two main themes I'm seeing. One is like history and forgotten histories, right? What we forget, what we come back to, how we decide, how we decide to place knowledge within history, how we decide to create history and what that leaves out, what that repeats, what that looks like. Um, but then also the whole animal humanity. I don't want to call it animal humanity, but animals having more in humanity. The, the inner lives of animals? The inner lives of animals. Just animals being more complex than we think and know. Which makes the, uh, here's the horrendous way to kill these hammerhead worms potentially a lot more disturbing. I know. Worms are like, whoa, what did I ever do to you that you want to carry around little jars full of solutions to dissolve me in? They're like, I'm a miracle. I'm an immortal, asexual, reproducing miracle. And you just all let me put you in my vinegar jar and in my freezer. Yeah. You're letting some home improvement guy tell you how to, how to kill me? (laughs) 
well, <laughs> on that note, um, so I, I think that the forgotten history and forgetting things and what we come back to, that feels like it has some legs for multiple topics. I, I think the mall culture fits in really well. I think the the thing that makes me anxious about normal gossip is the wanting to be forgotten, right? The like, yeah. um, you talked about Anne Louise Germain, what's her last name? Destale. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. It's S-T-A-E with an umlaut L. Stahl. She's French. We'll just call her Anne. <laughs> but yeah, that that we don't know who she, I don't know who she is. Um but that she was so important to so many figures in history that did get remembered. So kind of this, like, yeah, yeah the, the remembering. Um, and with, with the Rosa Bonheur, she was forgotten in her own time and not very important. And yeah. then now she is very important and known. And that happens all the time. Rembrandt, when Rembrandt was alive and then, Maybe not when he was alive, but like there was a long period in time where a lot of art historians were like, Rembrandt's not that great. He's adequate. And he wasn't something people talked about. It happens now, in literature all the time, too. Like, exactly. Poe died penniless. And now, is like, people have whole, like, I just imagine sometimes, like, what would Poe think about what people are doing? Like, they have like whole, like, Poe societies and dress up like him. And we're like, you know, and he's like, I could have used that when yeah, I wasn't in the gutter. Yeah, um, Van Gogh too, right? So many of them. So, so ideas about forgetting and what comes. Back. I feel like I feel like it's because we forget we keep returning to the same things. Is it too much of a stretch to say that we can connect the hammerhead worms because if you chop them up, they come back? Yeah. In, in a form that is different and the same. Yeah. Um, the dogs, the placebo effect. I mean, that we don't really know how placebo effect works, but it seems to have something to do with memory, like the way that our brain. Like you said, it has, yeah, it has to be the same cup. It has to be, yeah. Cow funerals. I mean, that seems to be some kind of memory of like the importance of that figure in their social hierarchy and wanting to kind of pass on that role. So yeah, okay. So something about memory and forgetting and coming back and coming back because we've forgotten it or being changed because of what we what the piece we forgot or what piece we remember, that seems to fit all of them in some way. So now we just got to make that into make a nice. Sense. And my uh, AirPods just made the dying sound. So now we're on a clock. <laughs> oh, no. And of course, that makes me slower because I get anxious. Um. So. Is there a way to like take the to understand all is to forgive all, but make it like to remember all? To remember all all is to forget all. (laughs) That was literally what I was thinking. To remember all is to forget all. Um, Or to forget all is. Sorry. To forget all is to remember all because of it. We just keep bringing it back. You know, like we forget it all for a while and then we have to remember it later. Like we have to like like with the malls right we're like we're get rid of those tear them down oh no actually we want that we we're kind of nostalgic for that now yeah that we were like forget about that and it's only once it's gone that it can be remembered yeah like is that true does does something have to be gone to be remembered 
It's like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not remembering. Ex- it has to be done. I'm not, yeah, I can't, I can't remember. It. If it's still happening, you're not remembering it. You're experiencing yeah. it. Yeah. So it has to be, it has to be gone. And forgotten is another way of saying gone. Gone I'm from memory. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying. It seems like a little too, it seems like one of those things, much like to understand all is to forgive all, where at first it seems to be very deep. And then it's like, no, that doesn't make sense. And I want to make sure we avoid that. But since the stakes no. are so high, exactly. <laughs> the stakes are that I will be called by various people in my life and they will tell me much better answers, as I have said. And no, they are better. The they stakes are, are that somebody is going to go gossip about us. <gasps> they're going to be like, Did you hear this? Idiots? Yeah, those idiots on that podcast. They think idiots they're so smart their with their friend podcast. They never, I, I knew she was that type. As soon as I heard her talk, I knew exactly what kind of person she was. I knew she was going to say that and her, and I'm sorry, I probably ruined this podcast for you for her. Oh, well, I'm glad I already finished it. Cause you would, I couldn't listen to it now because I would just think about people talking about me and I can't, I can't, I can't. Okay. To forget all is to remember all to remember all is to forget all. Is it both or is it only one? Oh, that's really, really interesting. Does it matter which order it goes? I think I, I, I think I'm sold on to forget all is to remember all, but I don't know if to remember all is to forget all. You know, you're right. Cause like I just said, it, it has to be done to be remembered because if we continue, if we continue being active and if we keep it around, then we don't forget it again necessarily. Then it's remembered. Exactly. This doesn't make any sense. So I think it is to forget all is to remember all. Beautiful. You're not giving it the opportunity to be remembered until you forget it. Yeah. Yeah. To forget all is to remember all. There we go. Done. In record time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is good. This is going to be the longest one. It has to be right. I mean, I think it's I'm, over three hours. I don't care. I don't care. I love talking to you and I love thinking thoughts, thinking thoughts as I stare and, off from the fence line. Yeah, this is, I feel like, um, I, I am becoming more scattered episode after episode that you can just, this is just going to be a documentation of my brain just fraying over these past two years. <gasps> oh. Which we mentioned when you were talking about the, the eye, the yeah. glass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Michelle, before we go on a scale of one to 10, how, how much how are, you, are you, how much, how squirrel are you? How much you end being spent squirrel? Uh, right. This second, this second. Oh, this second. I'm, and we just spent three hours in contemplative, you know, non-distracted focused. I'm not, not at all. Like I, we are fence. We are fence squirrels right now. Yes, exactly. That's my secondary fortune cookie. I am become fence squirrel creator of very nuts. (laughs) Hear me roar. (laughs) Uh, To all our fence squirrels out there. Goodbye. (laughs) When we make merch, that'll be the first t-shirt. Fence squirrel, fence squirrel. Absolutely. One to ten pets, girl. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs)